Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's very good, Dale. Good on you. That was a, you had to roll with that one, that's for sure. So if you've got your, uh, your outline, today I want to talk about not a normal Christmas. Not a normal or conventional Christmas. And here's the way I feel about this weekend's message. If I had insight from heaven that this is my last message I could ever give you, I would give you this message about the incarnation. God clothing himself in human flesh and coming to live among us. And this is the message I would give. The text that I would give it from is from here. Philippians chapter 2 and verse, does it work? Yes, I better turn it on. It's not your fault. So I'm experimenting with this today. We should be good to go. Yeah, here it is. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, equal with God, something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in an appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this text captures the full weight of the miracle of the incarnation more than any other text in the, all of the scriptures. This is it. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to ask a question. Have you seen a newborn baby recently? You know, your heart's going to be like a heart of stone, um, not to melt when you see their little pinkies and their little nails and their little eyelashes. They're just gorgeous, right? The little fingers and toes of a brand new baby. And when my kids were born... You know, I saw the beauty of their little miniature bodies, and it was astonishing to me. It, I thought, "Wowza!" I mean, even the little eyelashes. I could see some of these actually in the ultrasounds. They're so good these days. It's amazing. And to, you know, if you think back to the biology class that you went to a long time ago, for some of you, right? When what did you learn when you went back there? You remember that these beautiful little babies start out as an embryo, right? As an embryo. Whoa, that went fast. Where did all I go to? There we are. Whoa, whoa. Let's go back over there. An embryo. That's how you start off. An embryo. And you know how big that is? It's half the size of a grain of sand. Half the size of a grain of sand. Then it changes into this. And as you know, eventually this pops out. <laughs> a little bubba. So you start out as an embryo. And for our four kids started out as embryos, and nine months later, this is what came out, these type of kids. Miniature little people that come out and start to breathe and do all that magic stuff. Amazing. Now, the thing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ that many of us really even think about is that he was something big before he was something small, an embryo. Stay with me here. Before you were an embryo, you were nothing. Or you may have been a gleam in your parents' eyes. But here, before Christ was an embryo, he was the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity. Existing from eternity past. And Paul describes Christ's glorious life, both before 
And after his selfless humility, it's going to look like a V when we get to that later on. And it was expressed as in, the, in his incarnation. And basically that passage that we're going to look at today can be outlined in three basic movements. The first is the Son of God in glory in heaven before coming to earth. That's kind of like the first major movement. The second movement in this is the Son of God's selfless humility. He was humble. And then third, the third movement is the Son of God in glory after leaving earth. Now that's where we're going to go. We're going to go from up to down to up. That's how it's going to go, a V-shape. So the first one, the Son of God in glory before coming to earth. That's the first one. And the text clearly tells us that Jesus, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, did you catch that? Co-equal. Not a junior partner. Because most people today incorrectly think of Jesus as an assistant to God. That is heresy. That is not the facts. He's not the junior partner in the Trinity firm. <laughs> not at all. Co-equal with the Father. The Scripture never teaches that. Now, throughout the Bible, Jesus is carefully described, as is the Holy Spirit, as a fully-fledged member of the Godhead, equal to God in every way. Every way. Which means when Isaiah refers to the angels hovering before the throne of God 24-7, since eternity past singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and with voices of full voice and perfect harmony, they were glorifying Jesus Christ every much, a bit as much as they were glorifying God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So, in, G in Genesis 1-26, the text says, Then God said, Let us, plural, us make man in our image after our plural likeness. It means that Jesus was fully involved and present during the entire creation. Miracle that happened. In fact, I love Colossians 1.17, which says, He, Jesus, is before all things, down there, and in him holds all things together. So it's Jesus who holds the entire universe together. Now, what I'm going to drive at here is this. What I'm driving at is that not only was Jesus fully God, but he also had all the prerogatives and the accoutrements of heaven. He had the prerogatives which were fully available to him, which means if you start up in heaven as a second person of the Trinity and you wind up down here on earth as an embryo, half the size of a grain of sand implanted in some teenage Girl's womb, pardon the expression, but that's one heck of a demotion. Let me say the obvious. You lost a little stature when you took on that assignment. <laughs> Fair enough? And the Bible says this. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than even the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus did not come into this world after leaving 
the unspeakable glories of heaven. He did not come into this world to gain status. He did not come into this world, that was not his purpose, to gain political power. But to suffer and to die so that we can have eternal life. Hebrews 2.10 talks about that, bringing many children into glory. That's the purpose. So it's difficult for us to identify with Christ's servant attitude from where he's come from all the way down to something the size of it's half the size of a pinhead is another way of looking at that. And perhaps we need to evaluate our own motives, your motive and my motive, and ask ourselves, are we more interested in power or participation, position or service? Are we more interested in getting or giving? And just ask yourself to help you shape your answer there, what, what was the example of Jesus? What did that show you about his life? Now, here's a challenging question. How do you, you usually respond when you lose a little stature? How does that feel? Or you experience a little demotion, maybe in your company. How does it feel? Well, not many years ago, I was sitting in a plane in the States, going interstate. And I was sitting, I always like to get up as front as possible in the economy seats, so I'm out faster. I hate getting down the back. So I always ask for the most front uh, forward as I possibly can, window seat, but right up the front you know, in the economy. I was sitting there, and I was feeling quite blessed because I was just behind the curtain, you know? The curtain. That special curtain that separates the economy flyers like me from the holy of holies in the next class. <laughs> now, I just got myself situated and put my earphones on, which is normally my noise cancelling ones, and I noticed there was a situation brewing. Ahead, I could hear. There was a commotion going on, just, just ahead a little bit. And it was a business guy who was seated on the last seat of the holy of holies up there. But it wasn't going so well. It was only about two meters back. And next minute, after we got moving, the air hostess asked this person to move back into this seat. So he moved all of maybe two meters. Well, when he got sitting next to me, because there's a spare seat next to me, the guy was ready to blow a foo-foo valve. He was huffing and puffing. He made a huge scene. He was telling everybody, unabashedly, he's never flying this airline again. And he actually mentioned the eternal destiny of the flight stewardess, where she was headed after she was going to die. So apparently, he knew his Bible pretty well, right? So he sat down to, next to me. You could tell he was in a big steam up. He was in a huff. And I was, tempted, I was really tempted to say, because I don't like it when people get angry. I was tempted to whip off my headphones and say to him, cheer up, buster. <laughs> we all landed about the same time as the guys in first class do. But I thought it was probably not a good idea at this point in time. <laughs> so I restrained myself. Now, I, I didn't want to provoke him with such a cheerful thought. You know, what's the difference, mate? <laughs> he was miserable the whole, life, uh, the whole flight, and he hated that demotion. It offended his whatever sense of pride. He wanted to be in front of that curtain. He hated being behind the curtain, and he was miffed with his demotion. Now, do any of us... Take demotions lightly. 
Come on. If we get demoted in an organization, what do we normally do? What do we do? We leave. We quit, right? I'm out of here. Exactly. Somebody was honest. If we don't get the table we want sometimes at a restaurant that we're booked, we promptly spin around and we're out of there. No one I know likes demotions. No one I know takes them lying down. They fight. Yet, notice on an incarnation day, the greatest single demotion in all of recorded history occurred. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and hung on to for grim death. Really? Are you kidding me? If you were enjoying all the accoutrements and prerogatives of heaven, if you're enjoying all the beauty and the unity and the harmony and the indescribable splendor, would you voluntarily release your grip on that and just let it go? Really? Many years ago, a wonderful Christian family offered up their ridiculous home to the Buckley family. Their home was originally built by a man who won the California lottery. And my friend had bought it off him and he did the whole thing up. We went for family for an extended Christmas family break. And we took Nana Buckley as well. And we were floored by their incredibly generous offer because where they live is just ridiculous. It might as well be a palace. You, know, you nearly need a, I used to tease a guy, you need a ride on vacuum cleaner. <laughs> to get around the place. It was huge. Anyway, he said, look, I remember I was sitting next to him before this all happened. He said, Ian, would, would you like to bring the family up and you know, come and stay with us? I said, the whole lot, including all my kids and my mother? He said, come on. He said, I said, well, I'm going to have to pray about that, which I did, and the answer was yes. <laughs> you know, how quickly can God work if you're listening? Just hear him very fast. It's amazing how fast you can hear him when you're on the right mode. So, this is about 15 years or so ago. On the way driving to the house, because my kids had never been there before, they started asking me all sorts of different questions about it. And things like, you know, whilst we're in the back, say, hey, Dad, how many bedrooms will we have to share a bedroom and all this sort of stuff? You know, we'll have bedroom, you know, one of each. And how far is it from the lake? And has it got a TV? Or, you know, they weren't really sure at all. But when we pulled into the neighborhood, <laughs> you could hear the air being sucked out of our van. Our friend, we just pulled into the drive, you know, with fountains spraying everywhere and all this thing. And our friends welcomed us in our tribe. And when we came into their beautiful home with an enormous hallway, which is bigger than it seems to me like some people's apartments, the hallway alone, just the entrance place, our kids, their jaws dropped, and I watched them. <laughs> As I'd never seen a luxury like this before. There was a pool, uh, of course, and a jacuzzi, and exercise rooms, and home theater rooms, and every single bedroom in this ridiculous-sized house had their own en-suites, and they were not just en-suites. These were en-suites. They were unbelievable. So it blew our minds. Now, the reason I bring this up is when it came time after maybe about five, six days to pack up and go, 
I realized that it had only taken us a very few days to get used to living at that level of luxury. And it seemed to suit the family quite well. <laughs> so the, the irony of it is, this is how I felt. For some of you who have been around a while, you probably recognize these people. We came like the Clampets from New Zealand, <laughs> from Kiwi. But we left accustomed to that house and the measure of its resource and substance. Friends, listen carefully. We have no idea. Our minds cannot grasp what Jesus left behind when he left heaven to come to earth. All he'd ever known, not just for a, a week or so, but from eternity past, was the splendor and the glories of heaven. He had experienced worship and being worshipped and adored by legions of angels singing to him. As the scriptures say, no man has ever seen, nor I heard, no man has conceived what's going on there. And friends, Jesus left it for you, Neil. He left it. He left it voluntarily. He wasn't forced to. And not for a week. He left it for 33 years to come to people who didn't even like him. And most of them rejected him. And the moment he released the grip and he left heaven, he became an embryo implanted in the dark womb of a young 14 or 15-year-old teenage girl in the middle of the Middle East. There has never been and there never will be a demotion that dramatic in all of recorded history. But it doesn't stop here. Jesus did more than being willing to come and into an embryo. Way more. The second movement was this. The Son of God in selfless humility. Selfless humility. That's verse 7 through 8. The text tells us that he endured the indignity of being born... In an animal stable. Now, I've milked a lot of cows. Now, I've been in a lot of barns. And I know what poop smells like. And let me tell you, where you've got animals, you've got poop. We romanticize Christmas. But here's a, a, a head straightener. There is nothing to romanticize here. We're in a barn. He was born in unsanitary conditions. My wife, when we had kids, made everybody take their shoes off before we could come inside their house. Because it is unsanitary to bring dirty, filthy shoes that would be unspeakable places into a home. Leave them outside. Imagine, this is a barn. <clears throat> Surrounded by filthy, noisy livestock. This is not a clean hospital. Wrapped up in used, cut-up rags to keep them warm. This wasn't, this wasn't a bed of feathers. So that's, why was it just these cut-up rags? Because that's all this under-resourced peasant couple could afford. That's the facts. Then he was laid in a feeding trough. And by the way, at 90% of the time, probability of this, it was not wood. It was stone. And the reason for that is that the Romans taxed trees. So most of the trees in Israel of that days were cut down. When Jesus was supposedly a carpenter, mm, not much. Stone was the main deal he would have worked with. And he was able to work with wood, but we again get that wrong. 
So he goes into a feeding trough so his teenage mother could rest for a moment or two. What a demotion. And if that wasn't enough indignity, there's an earthly maniac, an egomaniac named Herod, who was engineering a baby suicide. So that before Jesus could walk or talk, or, uh, talk much, he and his parents were fleeing for their lives. Think ISIS is coming. Think that. This is the reality. Where do they go? Into a foreign country where they lived, dare I say it, as refugees, as resident aliens. Now, the second person of the Trinity is on the run in a foreign land? Can you get more demoted than that? Yep, you can. Next thing, Jesus made himself nothing. Now, I need to be clear about this. There's a bunch of unclear thinking about this. That means... It's not nothing as in Zippo. If you look into the Greek, what it means there is of no reputation. And he had nothing compared to what he had in divine glory. That's what that means. He stripped himself of all those accoutrements, all those things that were rightly his, divine glory and dignity. Now, the Bible even talks about it specifically, if you want to make a side note there, in John 17, 5. It talks about the glory I had with you before the world began. That's what it's talking about. That's what he left. And taking the very nature, he's gone from that to the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. Uh, the Amplified Version has got a good rap on that. But he stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity. Rightful dignity. You can see this. So it's to assume the guys, I like this, to assume the guise of a servant or a slave in that he became like men and was born as a mere human. Now remember the time Jesus' colleagues didn't even organize, they weren't organized enough to get a foot washer organized to clean the feet, because when you walked around there, you know, you didn't take your sandals off, you took them off and then you washed your feet. But they were too preoccupied and they weren't, didn't get their act together well enough. And then they were too proud to wash each other's stinky old feet. And so the second person of the Trinity takes off his robe, gets a serving towel over his arm, gets water in a basin, and washes the filthy feet of his 12 disciples. I want you to feel that. Where he's come from and where he is now. That means he took on the nature of a servant. Now, can you remember when you would teach his heart out for hours at a time, giving truths from heaven to people on planet Earth, people with just basically year three education who would jeer and mock him? They did. Can you get further demoted than that? Yep, you can. By being betrayed by some of your closest friends that you poured three years of your life into. You can be deserted by all your followers in your greatest moment of need. That's going to hurt. You can be falsely accused of a crime you didn't commit. And then you can be beaten and you can be flogged 
and slapped around, literally beard pulled and punched in the face. What I'm telling you today, in very colloquial terms, are the facts of Scripture. Not the romanticized, sterilized, sanitized version that you typically see. Can, but can you get dem further demoted than that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, remember you're getting beaten before I get there, beaten and flogged and punched in the face by the very people you came to redeem. But, next point, can you get further demoted than that? Oh, yes, you can. Because he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Down, 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 down. He humbled himself and became obedient to even death on a cross. This is, wasn't just a bullet or a spear or your head lopped off. It's over and done. This is death on the cross. That means that the second person of the Trinity, who has only known sinlessness from eternity past, has now got the whole weight of the sins of the world load onto his shoulders when he's on the cross. That's all of your sin, all of your pride, all of your arrogance, all of your pushing back to God, disobeying God. All your sin and all mine. And I have an impressive pile of my own, let alone yours. All your sins, all your mine, all my sins, all the sins of the world, all of the past, present and future, and they're all loaded onto his shoulders. And then, he's stripped of his clothes. Don't miss that. Suffered all sorts of indignity. He's humiliated, and then he's left to die. Last time I checked, there was only one guy, John, and the girls that hung around. Yep, he dies. Hold on. Let's just position this. The author of life dies. The one who breathed life into Adam and to Eve draws his final breath and he says these words. It is finished. It is finished. That is the central point of all of history. And then he submits himself to the ultimate weapon of evil. That, folks, was the final and the ultimate demotion, the very bottom. The giver of life gives up his life for people like you and like me. And he spills his last drop of blood for the remission of your sins and my sins and for the sins of this world. Now, I know what some of you are thinking this morning. You're like, Ian, lighten up. I've got a Christmas party to go to this afternoon <laughs> where there'll be beer and, you know, and all that other stuff. You know, though, after quite a year, January, February, March, COVID, Christmas. That's how it went. After quite the year, this is not going to be a normal Christmas for many people. This wasn't what we've just been looking at, a normal Christmas. It's going to be tougher Christmas for many of us because of circumstances in our lives. But... I wanted all of you to know this, that the original Christmas was not so normal. Did you see that? For the one we worship, it wasn't normal either. He didn't have so much of a normal Christmas that Christmas. It was Demotion Day, which is very quickly followed by Refugee Day, 
which is very follow, quickly followed by a, a series of non-stop demotions that I just walked you through. And then it led to death day, D-Day. I just wanted you to focus your minds and your hearts one more time before we start all the partying and the gift giving. Because that's just around the corner. And I want to remind you this morning that when you see a nativity scene, that the miracle baby lying in that manger didn't just, be, it didn't just come from an embryo, but he came from heaven. And he didn't have to leave heaven, but he did. And he left it joyfully and willingly for you and I on a mission to forgive your sins and my sins because there was forgiveness in no other name. And I think that the right thing to do between now and Christmas, when you see a nativity scene or you drive by some nativity scene, why not just pull over to the side of the road and put your head on the steering wheel? Put your head on your steering wheel and say, Jesus Christ, you are awesome. Awesome. You came for us. You're thoroughly wonderful. And just lift our hearts and worship. Now maybe some of you between now and Christmas Day would get in one of those alone places and you'd say to God something like this. I'm not going to let this Christmas be a normal Christmas this year. Because the Christmas, this Christmas even, I want to pour out my heart to you in worship and adoration like I've never done before. And Christmas is gone. I'm going to wrap my head around my, and my heart around your divine demotion that you were willing to do. Whereas most of us prideful human beings would never put up with a demotion like that. And I'm going to recite what those demotions are. I'm going to think about them intentionally. I'm going to bless you for every one of them that you did for me. Not just bundle it all up and lose the meaning. And friends, it would mean a lot to God. And it would mean a lot to Jesus Christ if between now and Christmas Day, you have one final outpouring of adoration for this multi-demoted Savior who did this joyfully because he loved you. All driven by love. And if you'd return that love to him, that would mean a lot to him. Philippians 2, 7 said that Jesus took on the nature of a servant. Now, a question, I, which I ask sincerely. Can the purposes of God in this world move forward in any significant way without the followers of Jesus Christ becoming servants, taking on the nature of a servant? Can the purposes of God move forward in a significant way without that happening? What's the answer? No. They can't. How do poor and persecuted people receive any kind of help or hope in this world unless a Christ follower puts on the serving towel over their arm or his or her arm and serves them and loves them and feeds them or provides them or makes a financial sacrifice to help alleviate their suffering? How is that possible? Unless somebody takes on the servant heart of this. Here's the equation for those of you who like math. No servanthood equals no food. 
That's simple. That's how the equation works. How the church leaders in under-resourced and persecuted and oppressed countries ever get equipped or encouraged and inspired unless some Christ followers in other resource countries put on their serving towel over their arms and serve them and encourage them and send funds to help the serving and equipping. Here's the equation. Back to the math. No sacrifice equals no serving and no training and no encouraging. That's how the equation works. How does a wayward man or a wayward woman or a wayward young person ever wind up redeemed and restored unless a fired up Christian who is not intimidated by the culture of this world takes on the nature of a servant and gets off the busy treadmill of their lives and looks at this person the way God does and says, I'm going to put my serving towel over my arm. I'm going to sit and listen and understand your pain, your situation, and your story. And I'm going to pray for you and help you where I can. And then if the Holy Spirit opens the door at all, I'm going to tell you about the good news of Jesus. That God loves you and Christ left heaven to come to earth to purchase your salvation. And the kingdom doors are open for you to walk in. That kind of sacrifice is what leads people to salvation. And here's what it means. No servanthood means a lot of times means no salvation for your friends or your family members. Nothing of substance in this world advances in the name of God until Christ followers like you and I follow the example of the demoted one. But nothing can stop the church of Jesus Christ with all Christ followers are in servant mode. You know, it's kind of like beast mode. Well, this is the servant mode. You need to change modes in servant mode and give their, have their sacrificial spirits engaged. Much like, I'll leave that. Then the poor gets served, church leaders around the world get served, young people get served, and the people come to faith. Now it all boils down to whether or not, here it is, we just talk a good game about being Christ followers, or we really get gripped by the demoted one and we see what he does, uh, did, and that informs our behaviors. We get gripped by the demoted one who took on the form of a servant and we live in like fashion. And then when we do that, you will not be able to stop the church of Jesus Christ from doing good in this world. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Third and finally, so he came down to death. Then the third movement is this, the son of God in glory after. Thanks, Chris. The Son of God in glory after, after leaving earth. The Bible says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know what he said? Now, if Christ had, who, who did have every right to remain enthroned on high, 
selflessly humbled himself for other people. Why would any one of us here who call themselves Christians think that we could do otherwise? Jesus Christ is the supreme example of true selfless humility. Look at the V-shaped uh, roadmap that he showed us. There it is right there. He came down from heaven, from divine glory, in self-humiliation. Became flesh. That's, he, he was always fully God, and he wrapped himself in flesh. There's a good hymn that says that. That's accurate theology. He's fully God and fully human. He humbly obeyed, verse 8, to the very bottom of the V, which is the death on the cross. And now we're talking about the other side. So therefore God raises him up to glorify him. He's resurrected from the dead and exalted. So he came from heaven to earth. We sing this to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, to the grave, to the sky. Lord, I... What is it? I lift your name on high. In doing that, he says to us, this is a very striking verse. I want to back up a few verses now. So what does it mean to me? Philippians 2, 4, and 5. And we're nearly there. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, just like our master, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. So my challenge to you this morning as we wrap is will you follow Christ's example of radical humility? Voluntarily and joyfully and humbly serving others. Becoming a servant of others rather than serving ourselves. Now to apply this Christ-centered principle more personally and specifically, I'm going to go back to this verse here. And I am going to read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, with that example there of selfless humility before our eyes, I'm going to recommend we take an exercise here and make it personal by taking that verse there and personalizing it by filling it with the blanks with the name of somebody that you are currently struggling with. Somebody. Struggling to get along with. Perhaps this is a, a fellow in your family. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a, another church member. Maybe it's a, a relative. Maybe it's a boss. Or an employee or a co-worker. But here's it would go. It's on your outline there. It says, following Christ's example. Um, remember? Following his example. And following the Holy Spirit's leading here, enablement, I will reject self-seeking glory and vain pride. That's what it says there. And I will strive to humbly regard. Now, put that person's name right there in the blank. It's on, it's on your outline. As more important than myself. And I will also look out for the interest of, put that person's name there. That's when it gets... Sticky. Now, what, now that you have the what the Lord wants you to do and the who in place, all that remains is to prayerfully consider how.
How will you put this commitment into practice as you perceive the Holy Spirit encouraging you towards greater humility? And how will you know if your attitudes and your actions have really changed towards that person? Friend, don't just wait for opportunities to put this into practice. Find opportunities and begin to live the Christ-like life of joyful, selfless humility. Let's pray. Jesus, your word clearly shows us that you had every right to remain enthroned on high. Yet, you selflessly and humbled yourself for others. Holy Spirit, help us to do likewise. Lord, you showed us a perfect example of selfless humility. Father, help each one of us to do likewise and have the attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, we ask this. In your precious and matchless name, all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.